All right. Now we're talking about the Good Samaritan and loving your neighbor as yourself. Oh, yes. We also have to dismiss the kids. Capital kids can be dismissed, and the adults can be dismissed since the youth Sunday. Just kidding. You guys can stay here. But kids, you guys can go downstairs. Thanks for staying. We had a video, and we wanted the kids to watch the video with us. Chris stayed up till like 3 a.m. making this video, so maybe we'll be able to play it on another Sunday. But it was asking people at his school, ISB, what does it mean to you to love your neighbor as yourself? And that's what we're going to look at today. And to start off with that, another thing, this was the, your children's idea. Your youth came up with this idea. I'd like all of you to stand up. Everybody stand up. Okay? This is going to be difficult. This is going to put you outside your comfort zone. And youth, you got to do it too. You need to sit next to somebody that's a new neighbor of yours. Move. Sit next to somebody that's a new neighbor of yours. We're talking today about loving your neighbor as yourself, so move somewhere. Good job. I'm proud of you guys. All right, you guys can have a seat. Sit down. Good job stepping outside your comfort zone today. Give yourself a little pat on the back. We're going to start off by reading Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. But first we're going to pray, so let's all bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we are so grateful that you first loved us. We pray that we would be able to put away any distractions and quiet our hearts and just focus on you for the next little bit. I pray also that you would help us to remember that it's all about you. It's not about us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 10, 25 to 28. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he asked Jesus a question, which we all know is a dangerous thing, because Jesus doesn't like to give you straightforward answers. What does he like to do? He likes to answer a question with a question. And in true Jesus fashion, that's what he does. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. I want to stop there. Guess, because I think many times when people look at this passage, they jump ahead and go straight into the story about the Good Samaritan. They start talking about being selfless and loving your enemy as yourself. And those are great things, but they're missing this truth that's packed into this first section right here. So that's what we're going to look at. Today we're going to look at two questions. The first question we already brought up, loving your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that? And the second question we'll look at in the Good Samaritan story in a little bit, who is your neighbor? But to start off with loving your neighbor as yourself, how do you do that? What does that look like? Loving your neighbor as yourself. You guys all probably have examples you can share, but there's something hidden in this passage that we overlook. There's something powerful that's happening here in this sentence, and I think oftentimes when people see this sentence, they get confused with do unto others as you would have them do to you, and that's, that's good, and that's awesome, but, but there's something else that Jesus is saying. We know that this isn't the only time this is brought up. Mark, in Mark, Jesus says this is the second greatest command of all, loving your neighbor as yourself, and in Mark and Luke, when this line is used, they're referencing Leviticus, when God is laying out the law for the Israelites. So we know that this is important. But what's happening here? I'll tell you guys what's happening here. 
when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's assuming that you are going to love yourself. He's assuming you're going to love yourself before you love your neighbor. He's assuming you're going to love yourself at all. And the reason that's kind of crazy is it's counterintuitive to the way we're, we're brought up and raised as Christians. You know, we're taught that uh, being selfish is a sin, and it is, and it leads to pride, but that we should put everybody else before ourselves. We're also taught pursue selflessness, which is good. That's true. But in reality, your relationship with yourself is one of the most important relationships you have. So why should you love yourself? Why should you love yourself? The simple answer, don't think too hard, is the Sunday school answer. Because Jesus loves you. Right? It's really easy. But it's really easy, but it's the best reason anybody could have for loving themselves. You're loved by the Most High, the powerful Creator. That's why you should love yourself. But there's more than that. Some of my high schoolers who come to our Thursday night Bible study might know the answer to this next part. Because we've been going through Louis Giglio's study on relationships. And he talks about how your relationship with God, which is your most important relationship, your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with others, all three of those are connected. And he says it in this beautiful way that perfectly captures what we're talking about. He says, you cannot love others compassionately, means with Christ's love, and that's what we're talking about. You cannot love others compassionately unless you love yourself correctly. That means not too much, not too little. But you cannot love yourself correctly if you do not love Christ completely. They all affect each other. So love yourself correctly so that you can love others compassionately. That's why you should love yourself. What about how you should love yourself? How should you love yourself? Every time you walk by a mirror, should you compliment yourself? Say, say how attractive you look? You know, or should you overlook all the flaws in your personality? Don't take any criticisms? Obviously not. A simple way to start off loving yourself is believing the things that God says about you. Psalm 139 says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you believe that? If you believe that, do you live a life that reflects that, that shows that? Do you believe you are made in his image? Do you live a life that shows that you are made in his image? Do you believe that you are a rare and beautiful treasure? Do you believe that you are made for a higher purpose, that you're held to a higher standard? So believing what he says about you is a very simple way to love yourself, but also just believing that he loves you. We're told from a young age that we're loved, but do you live a life that shouts out you are loved by the creator? That's how you should love yourself. Another truth we can unpack from this is that God is not calling you to love with your love. He's calling you to love with his love. And God is not calling you to love by yourself He's going to do it with you. I learned this when I was a teenager. Oh, I think I have a picture here. Uh, there we go. Yeah. It's not actually my family, but we'll pretend it is. <laughs> and I want to say a warning before I tell this story. My parents, uh, I may take some creative liberties with this story. I love you guys. I wouldn't change anything about my childhood. Uh, this story doesn't mean that I hate you guys, okay? <laughs> So my parents would say, Cam and my brother, Taylor, we want you guys to make friends with these kids, have fun with them, connect with them, love them. Because, you know, obviously if their kids have a great time, they're going to love our family more. So we did, and we do that. Summer after summer, year after year, it was awesome. 
And I would, I would um, come to these dinners, meet these families, and I would see somebody, and I'd pull out my love and pour it out to them, give it to them. But then we'd leave, and I'd never see that family again. Never. This was before Facebook. This was before I, I didn't have a phone back then. And then we'd go to another family, and we'd, we'd meet them, and I'd, pull, I'd pour out some grace to, to those kids and make a connection, and these guys are awesome. And then I'd leave them, and I'd never see them again. It was a pattern I started to realize. When I turned 15, I started hating it. I still did it, but I would meet the family, I'd pour out my kindness, and I'd leave them, and I'd never see them again. And right before I turned 16, I decided I'd, have, I'd, I'd had enough. I was done with that. It was too painful for me. I was empty. I had nothing left to give. And I had a conversation with God. I told him that. You can be angry with God. I said, I'm upset. I don't like that my parents do this. I don't like that you let this happen. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shut myself off. I don't want to have to open myself up anymore. It hurts. I'm going to go to these dinners. I'm going to smile. I'll shake hands. But I don't want to have to pour out into these people when I'm never getting anything back and when I feel so empty. I have nothing left to give. And God prompted me in my heart. He said, love them. And I got angry. <laughs> I got upset. I was like, I, with what? I have nothing left. There's nothing left inside of me. How do you want me to love them when I'm empty? He said, trust me. I said, I there's nothing to trust. I'm just going to get angry if I trust you. The same thing's going to happen over and over. And he, keep, he kept prompting me, said, trust me. I said, there's nothing to trust you with. I'm empty, but I'll try it. And I'm I was preparing myself to be mad because I thought I knew how it was going to go. I went to another dinner, and we met another family, and I had nothing left to give them. And I trusted God. I relied on him. And he was able to pull out of me when I was empty his love and give it to those people. And we went to another dinner, and I trusted God, and I relied on him. And he's able to pull out of me his kindness. And he opened me up when I wanted to shut myself off. And he's able to pour out of me onto these people his grace. And I learned something that day. I learned something that blew my mind. My love is finite. My love can break. My love, it runs out. And when it runs out, it hurts. But God's love is infinite. And his love is good and pure and perfect, and it's endless, and it's free. Sorry. And it's free. I also learned something about being connected to the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of us live the Christian life practically like this. We go to church, and we get filled up spiritually a little bit. We get filled up spiritually in our quiet times. You know, we get filled up spiritually with prayer. And when we're full, we go off and we pour out into other people's lives. We pour out into our friends. We pour out into our families. Pour out more, you know, until we're empty. And it drains us. And we're empty and we go back and we need to fill up again. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is when you're pouring into the other people, you're being drained. And when you're being drained, you're not connected to the Holy Spirit. You're not being filled up with Christ. That's not how it's supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be is a 24-7 connection with Jesus Christ so that the Holy Spirit can be constantly pouring into you and at some point your cup's going to overflow and then it can pour into other people's lives. You can bless them with your gifts and bless them with the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. 
because you'll be loving them with his love, and his love is infinite. All right, at this point, I'd like to ask the drama team to come on up, and they're going to introduce the next section of the talk. Awesome. All right, so we're going to read the next part of the scripture, Luke chapter 10, 29 through 37, where we get into the story about the Good Samaritan. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. So this is the second question that he asks Jesus, and Jesus still doesn't give a straight answer. He tells a long story, and then just like before, he answers the question with a question by saying, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So in this example, we see Jesus using the Samaritan and the Jew. And he uses them because as most of you probably know, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They viewed them as less than them like a lesser race than themselves. So immediately we see Jesus painting a picture that compares or describes your enemy as your neighbor. I don't know about you guys, but when I hear enemy, I think of Batman fighting Joker, right? Or Mario fighting Bowser. You know, arch enemies. Or King Kong. Or even Godzilla. Or a million other different ones. The point is, I think sometimes our idea of an enemy makes it difficult for us to, to relate with this passage, loving your enemy, because we think we don't have them. But the reality is we live in a sinful world, and there are sinful people in that world. You have all experienced pain and hurt and loss, and oftentimes there's somebody who's caused you pain and hurt and loss. That's who Jesus is talking about. That's your enemy. That's who you're called to love as your neighbor. And maybe you don't have anybody like that in your life. Maybe you just have that person you can't stand. Those people you just avoid at all costs. Maybe it's even your little brother. That's your enemy. That's who Jesus is talking about. That's who you're called to love as your neighbor. The person who causes you pain, hurt, the people you can't stand, who you avoid, you are called to love them as your neighbor. So if you're called to love your enemy as your neighbor... Who, what about the, everybody else? You don't have to love them? Well, of course not. The simple answer is everyone is your neighbor. When we're talking about loving your neighbor as yourself and who is your neighbor, everybody is. And it's a, such a simple answer, but it's so powerful because it changes everything. If you accept it and you live by it, that, that everybody is your neighbor, then it will change the way you affect and treat every person that you meet. It's powerful. A great example of this, and one of my heroes is Mother Teresa. She became a nun, a Catholic nun, at the age of 18. 
And when she received approval, well, her whole life, she dedicated to loving and serving the weak and the poor. And when she received approval from the Vatican to start her charity, this is how she described her charity. In her words, she said, it would care for the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society, people that have become a burden to the society and are shunned by everyone. So that's who she loved. She spent her life helping those people, and she didn't just help them. She didn't just work with them. She went and lived among them in the poverty, in the disease. And when she died, she worked, by the time she died, she had worked 517 missions in over 100 countries around the world. Her charity, it started off with 12 people. By the time she died, it had 4,000 people operating 450 centers around the world. So she didn't just change the life of every person that she met by loving them. She changed the world even after she died. We still talk about her. We still remember who she is. It's an amazing example of somebody who changed people through love. With the youth downstairs, I always like to give an example of what I'm not saying and what the passage is not telling us because it's important to do. So I'm going to do that with you guys today. Unfortunately, in my life, I have too many examples of what not to do, so this is a personal example. And I want you all to know at the beginning of the story, another disclaimer, my wife is okay. She's here, and she's all right. Nothing happened to her in this story, though you might think something did. Back when we were dating in college, we lived in South Carolina. And you can go to the next slide. We lived in South Carolina, and we had to drive a friend to Georgia, Atlanta, to catch a midnight flight. So we drove him, dropped him off, he caught his flight out. We have to drive back, and it's about a seven, seven or eight hour drive, depending on how fast you drive. So it's about 1 a.m., we pull over at a gas station in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, we don't live there, we don't know anybody there, and we're just getting some gas. And there's a guy standing next to his car, and he asks me for some help. He says, hey, I'm out of gas. And uh, he looks a little suspicious. It looks like he might not all be there, you know what I mean? And so I said, sure, let me buy you some gas. He said, no, you have to give me a ride home because something, something, something. And so I went inside to pay for my gas, and the guy in the, the gas station attendant, he said, don't, don't talk to that guy. That guy's dangerous. And, you know, me being the wise, young, 21-year-old college kid, I went back and talked to the guy. And I said, uh, sure, I'll give you a ride home. And he told me that it was, his, it was his birthday, and he was under the influence of multiple different things. And so I'd, I would tried to be responsible. I tried to do what I thought was wise. I thought if I bring him in the car with me and my girlfriend and he does something, I'm driving, I won't be able to help protect her. So here's what I thought was the wisest, safest course of action. I decided to, I told Caitlin, you, that's my wife, then girlfriend, I said, you stay in the gas station and wait for me while I drive him home. In the middle of Atlanta at midnight, somewhere we don't even know. And let me explain how you know this gas station was a dangerous spot. You guys ever been to gas stations? They have the food, the cashier standing behind the counter. Sometimes they'll have a little glass around him, but a little door. This one, half of the place was wall-to-wall, bulletproof glass. There was no door for the guy to get in or out. And the part where you put money in, it's one of those metal drawers, so you can't even reach him. So you know this was a dangerous place. And the guy said to me, he said, do not leave your girlfriend here. This place is dangerous. I said, this is how I responded. I said, can you keep an eye on her? I'm going to drive this guy home. <laughs> so I drove this guy home. I thought I was helping. I thought I was loving my neighbor as myself. He said it was just down the road. I drove down the road. Turn here, turn there, turn here. Get to his house. There's a long, dark street. 
down his driveway. He says, can you just drive down? I said, no, you can walk down the driveway. And he walked down the driveway. I went back. Caitlin, are you here? Are you alive? She's there in the back. So she's okay. But it's an example of foolishness. You are not called to help every single person in the world. You can't do that. You would die. Don't put yourself in harm's way because you think it's going to make you better or make you holier. It's not. It's just going to hurt yourself. You're not called to be irresponsible. You're not called to be foolish. What you are called to do is what this next person did, to, did for me. Uh, a couple months ago, I was running late for the bus. I was sprinting full out for the 966 on my road. I, I'd already missed it. And this guy on a scooter, Chinese guy on a scooter, pulled up next to me and just pointed on the back of his scooter. So I jumped on, I grabbed him around the waist, and he zips off after my bus. And he's talking to me while he's driving. He's like, hey, this is the first time anybody else has ridden on this scooter. <laughs> I said, whoa, he said, I just bought this today. My girlfriend hasn't even ridden on it. I was like, thank you so much. I feel so honored. So he catches up to the bus, and he didn't just drop me off at the bus stop. He cut the bus off before it got to the bus stop. The bus couldn't even pull up. He waited until I got out. Then he moved. I got on the bus. That guy loved me through his actions. I was blessed by him. He probably wasn't even a Christian, but it's an awesome, awesome example of loving your neighbor as yourself. I want to close today just by reading 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. You've all probably heard it. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about what love really is. And I think it applies here with a little bit of a different perspective. I love the drama because they did a rich businessman and a strong athlete. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that it doesn't matter what you have, what you do, who you are. Without Christ's love, it's nothing. It's meaningless. It doesn't matter if you're the rich, successful businessman. You have all the money. Without love, you don't have anything. It doesn't matter if you're the strong athletic guy and you take care of your body, you're super fast. If you don't have love, it's meaningless. Tim Keller says, love decreases your pride and increases your value. It shows the power and importance of this simple concept. And it kind of explains how something as simple as loving your neighbor as yourself could be so important to the almighty God the creator of everything. So I invite you guys to listen with a new perspective to 1 Corinthians 13. I put the two verses on the screen that I feel best emphasize what we talked about today, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. Oops. <clears throat> if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, does not, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily, easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It prophesies. They, uh, they will... Cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. 
Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for first loving us so that we can love you and in return love other people. We praise you and we glorify you. I pray you would help us focus this week on how we can love ourselves correctly and how we can love those that we run into every day compassionately. What can we do? What, what can we do for them? In Jesus' name, amen.